years mm-hmm. and started. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the fourth Wednesday of the month, which means it's time for the Lifestyle Docs. And today they're going to be talking about the next pillar of lifestyle medicine, which is sleep. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Munish and Dr. Bandana Chala. Nice to see you again. Good morning. Nice to see you again, too. Yeah, so sleep. It's important. And a lot of people don't have good sleep or don't get enough sleep. They're taking sleeping pills. They're drinking coffee all day. How can we solve this epidemic of not enough sleep or not enough good sleep? Yes, yes. And this is why it's one of the important pillars of lifestyle medicine. And for this presentation, we're going to tag team it. So Dr. V is going to do maybe the first 20 minutes or so, and then I'll jump in. Okay, well, let's get started. Yeah, Yeah, please. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, so we have no disclosures for this presentation. And then just to remind everybody about American College of Lifestyle Medicine has um, six pillars that we use as a therapeutic approach um, when we are talking about avoiding, preventing, managing, and reversing chronic diseases. The three pillars we've already done on Chef AJ Live have been nutrition, exercise, stress management. Um, Today we'll focus on sleep, and then we have two more for the future. Um, One is healthy community and healthy relationships. Um, And then the last one where we go into um, substance abuse, but then we also go into food addictions, not just substance addictions, and then also talk about behavior change in that that presentation. So today our focus is sleep. And these are our objectives. We'll talk about some cultural attitudes when it comes to sleep, sleep physiology and architecture, go over a couple of sleep disorders, and then talk about detriments of inadequate sleep. And then finally strategies for optimizing our sleep. So, As many of you know, a lot of us have friends who brag about how little sleep they got or how they're functioning with on on empty because they haven't gotten around to getting any rest. Um, It's kind of looked upon as an inconvenience um, in the sense that we're in this go-go world of um, accomplish more and do more and sleep is considered as something relatively lazy or not, not doing enough. Um, So about 150 years ago, most of us were getting about eight and a half hours of sleep a night, and now two-thirds of us are getting less than eight hours, and 31% of us are getting less than six hours, and less than six hours is so detrimental to our health, and Dr. M is going to go over that a little bit more later. In terms of sleep chronotypes, Um, You guys hear about larks and night owls. Um, So about 15% of people will be larks and that would be me to where after 9 p.m. I start getting really sleepy and it's really hard for me to stay at even a social engagement too long um, because I need to, but 5 a.m. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to start working, start doing my yoga, meditation, whatever else I need to to start the day. Um, And then there are, People like night owls, where it's really hard for them to fall asleep before midnight, um, and they they get a lot of their work done later at night. But most people are neither larks or night owls. They can adjust. It's malleable. If their partner is a lark, um, they'll be okay going to sleep early, which is what my husband does for me. Um, and um, so, so you guys can figure out where you may be on this. Okay, so when it is time for sleep, whether it's early for you as a lark or a little later, um, one of the main things we want to start doing is having things get darker because darkness gets melatonin secretion started and melatonin is what helps us 
turn off the internal lights and get ready for sleep to come in. Um, also, there's a decrease of cortisol at that time. Um, melatonin will also um, increase blood flow to our extremities to get our core temperature to drop uh, because that is an important part of falling asleep is getting the core temperature to be lower. So melatonin basically gets us to the start line, gets us ready for the race. Um, but the fuel for the race would be um, adenosine. And so we get the sleep pressure up where we're getting sleepier and sleepier. Um, and it's the buildup of adenosine that keeps us asleep during the night. Um, and a few things that can help you build up that adenosine during the day so you have enough at night to sleep would be things like exercise and going outside and seeing daylight in the morning. Um, Avoiding things like caffeine because caffeine actually lowers the adenosine and um, keeps you up in that way artificially uh, by lowering the adenosine. Okay, and here's a little graphic of sleep architecture. Basically, we go through these 90 minute cycles over and over again, um, and we go through periods of REM sleep and non-REM sleep. REM stands for rapid eye movements. Um, that's the part of the sleep where we're dreaming. Um, and non-REM sleep is the deeper where we go into further down into stage two, stage three, and stage four of sleep. Um, and usually we'll go into deeper sleep earlier in the night or earlier during our sleep time. Um, so it's the first four or five hours that are really, really important in terms of getting deep sleep because later on the REM stage gets longer, as you can see. Um, and then even when we're non-REM, we're not going as deep into sleep. So a couple of sleep disorders that we see a lot as physicians is insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea these days. Insomnia is difficulty in initiating or maintaining sleep. It's poor quality sleep, but for it to be diagnosed, we'd like to have it be minimum of one month because all of us go through times when our sleep isn't so good for one reason or another. Um, and we don't call it insomnia just for a couple of nights or a few nights or a few nights uh, uh, a month of inadequate sleep. Um, insomnia also leads to daytime impairment where it's difficult for you to function. Um, 10 to 30% of the population has complaints of insomnia these days. And obstructive sleep apnea incidence is also rising as obesity is rising. Um, it's complete or partial airway obstruction. Um, there's decrease in ventilatory drive and neuromuscular changes. Um, people experience it more when they're in the supine sleeping posture, when they're on the side, it's a little bit better. Um, and sleep apnea will increase our risk for metabolic and cardiovascular diseases two to three fold. So really high blood pressure, heart disease, um, all of it is made worse with sleep apnea. And these are the common risk factors. Um, higher age, obesity, male gender, um, the neck circumference, um, loud disruptive snoring or apnea episodes. So apnea is basically episodes of not breathing. Hypopnea is breathing and not as well and apnea is, is not breathing. Um, and often people will complain of excessive daytime somnolence with obstructive sleep apnea to where even if they've gotten like eight, even nine hours of sleep, um, it's not the quantities, the quality of the sleep that gets them sleepy again the next day. So a lot of times their partners will complain that, uh, what do you mean that you didn't, that you're sleepy? You slept eight hours last night, you actually kept me up because of your loud snoring. Um, and now you're, you're yawning and you're um, complaining of being tired. So in my clinic, we'll often do what we call a stop bank sleep apnea questionnaire for our patients who we feel like maybe having these symptoms or are at risk. Um, so stop bank, this is what it's 
it um, stands for is, S is for do you snore loudly? T is for do you feel tired, fatigued during the day? O, which is a very important one, is has anyone observed you stop breathing during your sleep? Um, oftentimes the partners will tell me that um, what they notice is the person will say, uh, go snore, snore, snore. And then there's a big pause and then loud snore and then back to snore, snore, snore. So that, that pause between uh, their usual snoring and then a loud snoring um, is, is the apnea episode. Um, and during that episode, because you're not breathing, your oxygen level also drops down. So your brain actually isn't getting oxygen for that short period of time. Um, and then we ask them if they have high blood pressure, if they're being treated with high blood pressure, because again, there's a big correlation between sleep apnea and that. Um, and then the bang part is BMI greater than 35, which um, you know, obesity starts at BMI of 30, morbid obesity starts at BMI of 35 age greater than 50 years, neck circumference greater than 16. And sometimes I'll measure that in the clinic um, because they're not sure what their neck circumference is to get this questionnaire answered. And if they're male. Um, so usually low risk, you know, zero to two, we reassure them, intermediate risk, um, we talk about other things. Um, and high risk, we definitely, um, want to get a sleep study. And even intermediate risk, let's say their score was just three to four. But if one of those yeses was, has anyone observed you stop breathing? Well, that, that requires a sleep study. And then during the overnight sleep study, they're checking the EEG, um, pulse oximeter to see if your oxygen level is dropping. And of course, things like your temperature and your pressure to find out what's going on during those apnea episodes. And then treatment is, um, you know, usually CPAP. Um, these days, there's also oral appliances and surgery, even these nerve stimulators. Inspire is one that some of my patients have. It's kind of like, um, almost like a pacemaker-like thing, but it's put in and you have a remote control with it. Uh, but then of course, as lifestyle medicine physician, we also want to focus on diet and lifestyle. And we do have patients who, um, have obesity and diabetes and things, and they come in to work with us to, um, you know, put their diabetes in remission or lose weight. And what they notice is their um, often sleep apnea goes away as they get healthier. Um, or out of out of oftentimes we even have to change the settings of the CPAP if it doesn't go away completely. It improves considerably. So now I'll hand it over to Dr. M for the consequences of inadequate sleep. And we'll just kind of save all the questions till the end, if that's okay. So I'm gonna go, you know, keep going. So I was trying to debate whether to say detriments of inadequate sleep or consequences of inadequate sleep, but basically there is harm to our body when we're not getting enough sleep. And this harm or this effect affects all of our physiology, affects our immune system, affects our metabolic health, makes us increased risk for hypertension, obesity, diabetes, you know, heart disease, mood disorders, impairs our cognition, even places us at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. So we're going to look at all of these in a little bit more detail, but I just want to kind of underline with this slide that there's profound physiological uh, changes for the worse that happen if we don't get inadequate sleep. And there are much more, but you know, just for the sake of uh, not having this a two hour uh, presentation, we're gonna focus on these five. So one of the first things I wanna kind of remind everyone that melatonin, as Dr. B mentioned, is the hormone that gets everything ready. It's sort of the internal housekeeping gets us ready for sleep, but it has the it has many other functions. And another function is immune modulation. So it's very much related to how our immune uh, system works. So when we have low levels of melatonin, you know, it's gonna impact our immune system. But going back to sleep, when we're not getting uh, adequate amount of sleep, 
adequate amount of restful sleep or restorative sleep, our DNA repair is impacted. So most of the repair, most of the uh, housekeeping that the body does, the brain does occurs at night, especially during deep sleep. So we're gonna get damaged you know, throughout the day, even if you're eating the healthiest food, there's still some waste products, there's still some potential damage. And you know, uh, UV rays, pollution, all that's gonna damage our cells, including our DNA. So at nighttime, our body is busy working on repairing the DNA. And if we're not getting deep enough sleep, it's not gonna be able to do that. And when the DNA is not adequately repair, this can progress to tumor cells. So immune system has another way of dealing with it. So if it recognizes that there's a tumor cell, it can cause apoptosis. Basically that's programming cell death. But all of these functions, you know, repair of the DNA, apoptosis, all these decrease if we're not getting good sleep. There's anti-cancer cytokines that are produced during nighttime, especially during deep sleep. So we're really increasing our risk for all cancers when we're not getting uh, good sleep. Uh, you know, every now and then it's not a big deal, but if this happens to be a chronic pattern, we are really increasing our risk for cancers. And a lot of this research has been done with night shift workers. And typically, most people who work night shift, you know, obviously, they're going to sleep during the day. And most of them are not able to sleep very well. They don't sleep as long, and the quality also suffers. So there's considerable evidence showing that in night shift workers, there's increased risk for cancers. The other way uh, lack of sleep or poor sleep or inadequate sleep uh, alters our immune system is the natural killer cell activity is decreased by 72%, you know, not 20%, not 30%. Just one night of sleep where you slept only four hours or less, your natural killer cell activity decreases by 72%. So this places us at increased risk for viral infections. So natural killer cells are our first defense against viruses. And I've actually noticed this personally in my own life uh, during medical school, you know, I would sometimes not keep up with the lessons on a day-to-day -day basis and an exam is coming up. So a couple of nights in a row, I'm staying up really late. And if we had a series of examinations that it happened to be three, four nights that I didn't get a good night's sleep, invariably when exams were over, I would get a cold. And I was like, why is this happening? You know, exams are over. I have some free time. I want to do something. So now I know that I was decreasing my natural killer cell activity and that made me more prone to get viral infections. Uh, there's also considerable research showing that when we get vaccines, we, you know, we think that they're gonna be effective, they're gonna prevent diseases, but the effectiveness of different vaccines decreases if the individual hasn't slept very well the last week or two weeks before they got the uh, immunization. So this has been especially well studied with hepatitis B vaccines, because this vaccines, I, you know, you may or may not know, this is a course of three vaccines administered over six months. So they grouped people that were habitually sleeping six hours or less, and the other group was uh, that they were sleeping seven hours or more. And they just saw, okay, does this make a difference? You know, those who are sleeping six or less hours and those who are sleeping seven or more, will the hepatitis B vaccine be just as effective or less effective? So they check this by checking how much of the antibodies the body produces after you do the vaccines. And they noticed there was a 15-fold higher risk of not being adequately, not producing adequate amount of antibodies in the group that was getting less than six hours of sleep. So they were at a much higher risk of the hepatitis B vaccines being not effective, 15-fold higher. Okay, uh, moving on to metabolic disorders. So this is something really, you know, amazing. And I share this with my patients all the time because a lot of them suffer from poor sleep. And I uh, remind them of the study. This was a study done in-house. So the patients were in the hospital or in a metabolic ward. And for seven days, their sleep was disrupted. They were purposely and uh, consciously 
kept from getting a good night's sleep and they limited the amount of sleep they could get to up to five hours. And these were college students and the age range in the study was from 22 to 32 and their BMI was 23, so within normal range. So they didn't have insulin resistance, they didn't have diabetes, pre-diabetes, normal BMI, young people. So for seven days, they disrupted their sleep and made sure that they didn't get more than five hours. 32% of the people who participated in this study ended up getting pre-diabetes. You could diagnose insulin resistance. So they were checking you know, fasting insulin, fasting glucose, checking cortisol, leptin, ghrelin, all these levels. And the other thing they noticed that the cortisol was higher. And they also noticed that there was decrease in leptin. And you know, those of you watching Chef Asia on a regular basis, you'll know that leptin is a satiety hormone. It lets us know that you know, we've eaten enough. So if there's a decrease in that, you know, it's gonna tell us to keep eating. And the other thing is an increased ghrelin. Ghrelin, you can think of as the hunger hormone. It's gonna want us to make eating more. Additionally, not necessarily from this study, we've noticed that in other studies, when people don't get a good night's sleep, they have lower impulse control. They gravitate towards highly processed, calorie-dense processed foods. So given that the insulin resistance is worse, there's decrease in leptin, increase in ghrelin, increase in cortisol, this is the perfect recipe for gaining weight. And there's considerable evidence showing that with poor sleep, there's increased risk for obesity, diabetes, you know, metabolic syndrome, elevated lipids, hypertension, all these things that go along with metabolic syndrome. So really affects your metabolism in a very profound way. Uh, next, uh, cardiovascular diseases. Uh, and this is another place where lack of sleep is really detrimental. So just in general, uh, when we're sleeping and sleeping well or sleeping optimally, our blood pressure decreases at night and it goes down by 10 to 20%. So let's say during the day you're 120 over 80, during the night, you know, just normally this will go down to about 100 over 62, let's say. But if you're not getting enough sleep, this nocturnal dipping never happens. Furthermore, there is research showing that if you sleep five or less hours, you have a 60% higher risk for hypertension. So this is with, you know, normal BMI, no other risk factors for hypertension. Just poor sleep is going to increase your risk for hypertension by 60%. Also, when we're not getting enough sleep, we have endothelial inflammation. So, you know, my patients that I work with, they're really concerned about endothelial inflammation. They want to make sure that they're not getting heart disease. So they're eating well, exercising, you know, checking all those boxes, but they're also burning the midnight oil. So I remind them, you know, all these things that you're doing, all the smoothies, all the exercise, you know, it's going to be much less effective if you're not getting a good night's sleep, just poor sleep is going to cause endothelial inflammation. So with increased risk for hypertension, with endothelial inflammation, this is gonna risk, increase our risk for coronary artery disease, strokes, and other cardiovascular disorders. Uh, mood disorders, and this is something I think people pretty commonly know that this is gonna increase their risk for anxiety and depression. And all of us, if we don't get a good night's sleep, especially a couple of nights in a row, we're cranky. And my wife certainly lets me know <laughs> that you, know, you need to shape up. And so mood disorders are intimately related to sleep. And research also shows that you know, folks that are addicted to alcohol or other substances or even food, there are gonna be relapse in addictions. So when we're not getting good sleep, our impulse control suffers and there's a very high risk for relapsing alcohol or whatever your substance of addiction is. And sleep is very important, especially the REM part. So Dr. B went over a little bit, she talked about you know, the non-REM sleep, which has you know, stages one, two, three, and four, and stages three and four being the deep sleep, and the REM sleep, which, uh, which is the rapid eye movement or the dreaming state. So for physiological cleanup, 
deep sleep is really important, but for emotional uh, cleanup or cleaning up the brain, REM sleep is really important. So if you've had you know, an unpleasant day for whatever reason, if you get a good night's sleep, the next day, everything looks a little bit better. Basically, uh, REM is sort of like our internal personal psychotherapy. It extinguishes fear, anxiety, lowers anxiety, really is helpful to manage emotional issues. So uh, memory and cognition is affected when we don't get adequate sleep. So hippocampus, if you're familiar with that word, think of this as the memory inbox. So when we're not getting enough sleep, the capacity of the inbox is reduced. So we can just put less into the hippocampus. Furthermore, during, uh, during the night, the memories are consolidated into our cortex and that process suffers also. So one, you can have less capacity to memorize and two, you have less capacity to consolidate the memory into long-term memory. Uh, in addition, there is reduced production of BDNF. BDNF, remember, is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. This is responsible for repairing our neurons, growth of our neurons. So if we're not getting enough sleep, we're basically damaging our neurons. We're not keeping them healthy. We're not you know, reducing their longevity. The other thing that's really important is the glymphatic system. So this is relatively new. This is something we really just discovered like about 20 years ago. The body has a lymphatic system. You know, you can think of our lymphatic system as our sewer system. So all the waste products of the cell, if they're small enough, they can go into the capillaries and into the veins and into the circulation. But if larger molecules and larger compounds can't go into the tiny capillaries, they are dumped into the lymphatic system. That's sort of the sewer system of the body. And scientists suspected that there has to be something in the brain that's sort of like a sewer system that we can get rid of all the garbage that builds up. And finally, they discovered it, and it's called the glymphatic system. And the glymphatic system is really only active during nighttime. So if you're not getting good night's sleep on a chronic basis, this is like garbage building up in the brain. And this is just basically going to damage the neurons, cause neuroinflammation, make you at a higher risk for all neurodegenerative diseases, not just cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease. So those uh, folks you know, who have similar genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's disease, let's say, but one individual has good sleep habits, they're sleeping better. They've done research showing that they have a lesser risk for developing Alzheimer's disease just by you know, getting better sleep. So I wanna kind of shift gears a little bit, talk about medication, other substances and how they affect our sleep. So I'm just gonna say, I'm just the messenger. This is just what the research shows. So alcohol is a sedative. It is not something that's going to produce good sleep or naturalistic sleep. It's gonna affect our sleep architecture. And the way alcohol works, and a lot of people use it in this way, it is a sedative. So if you're kind of all wired, it will help you, it'll sedate you, but you're not gonna get good sleep. And when the alcohol is metabolized, these metabolites are going, or some of them are diuretic, which means you have to go to the bathroom. So that's gonna wake you up. And other metabolites increase your heart rate, increase the stress hormones, and that's gonna wake you up. So it may help you get to sleep, but it's gonna wake you up in the middle of the night and also you're not getting naturalistic sleep. So as lifestyle medicine physicians, we really advocate for little to no alcohol, but certainly no alcohol in the last three hours before going to sleep. Okay, caffeine is another one that folks, when I share this research with my patients, they're really kind of unhappy with me that caffeine is not something that's conducive to getting a good night's sleep. So really there's been a lot of research in caffeine and there's some controversy, but more and more we're learning that there are two different types of people. About 40% of the population can handle caffeine and it really doesn't affect their sleep, doesn't raise their blood pressure, and as best as we can tell, doesn't place them in higher risk for coronary artery disease. But majority, 60% or more, are really affected by caffeine. Caffeine is a stimulant. 
it's a uh, similar in composition to some of the stress hormones like epinephrine. So it's going to boost our, uh, you know, boost our heart rate, our blood pressure, and about 60% of the population is really sensitive to this. So if you are someone, you drink a little caffeine and you really park up and your heart rate quickens, then you are someone who really should not be doing caffeine at all. You know, one is going to really affect your sleep and two is gonna increase your risk for hypertension and heart disease. But I know plenty of people they can drink caffeine and it really doesn't affect them one bit. And now there's research showing that there is a phenotype that can handle caffeine much better. They can degrade the caffeine very quickly. But typically caffeine will take three to eight hours. So as lifestyle medicine physicians, we again tell people that if you don't know whether you can handle caffeine well or not, just don't drink it other than the morning and just keep it to a cup. But if they can handle caffeine, I say, okay, even then, not the last three hours. That's sort of my general rule, whether, you know, no eating, no alcohol, no caffeine, the last three hours. A lot of people at times need help like benzodiazepines and these newer non-benzodiazepine medications like Ambien and Lunesta. And for benzos especially, there is a very high risk that these things are gonna be addictive. So physicians are no longer prescribing these for as sleep aids, but now we're finding out even the non-benzodiazepine, the barbiturates and things like Lunesta and Ambien, even these are habit forming, that even they can place you at higher risk for addiction. So now we're gonna get to the good part. You know, we've covered all the bad stuff, but now we're gonna see how can we get a good night's sleep? So we're going to look at sleep hygiene. We're going to see what type of diet supports good sleep. And of course, we're going to look at lifestyle. But it'll also cover mindfulness and supplements. So sleep hygiene. So if someone you know, is having some challenges, they're not sleeping well, or two, three nights a week, they're not able to sleep well, then we really want to get kind of clean up you know, their sleep routine. So one is having a consistent sleep schedule. If you're sleeping at 10 o'clock one day, one o'clock the next day, 11 o'clock, you know, it's all over the place. That is not conducive to getting a good night's sleep on a long-term basis. So one, I ask them, you know, it doesn't matter if you want to choose to sleep at nine or 11, you just need to be consistent. And secondly, build a wind down routine. So many of my patients are you know, playing a video game or on social media or watching TV and they turn off the TV and they want to go to sleep. Well, their brain is all active, you know, especially with these small devices, with the cell phones. And even if you change the setting from blue light to orange light, just the engagement of these devices, your stress hormones are higher. You're just more awake and alert. You're not going to be able to go to sleep very quickly. So I tell them, put the devices away and really kind of have a nighttime routine, whether that means for you taking a shower, doing some stretching, doing something you enjoy, reading, just doing things that are restorative and it's gonna allow you to kind of ease into going to sleep instead of you know just doing something really active and then trying to go to sleep. Another thing that helps is not taking any naps after 2 p.m. and keeping the naps for less than 30 minutes you know, optimizing your surroundings in a dark, quiet, and cool bedroom is really conducive to getting a good night's sleep. Okay, so diet, you know, no surprise here, if you're eating calorie-dense, processed, fried foods, all of these are going to uh, disrupt our sleep patterns because the body with these calorie-dense foods is going to be using all its energy to process these foods, to absorb these foods, to put away these foods. And that takes energy that raising certain hormones. So that's not conducive to a good night's sleep. You know, probably folks have heard that foods that are high in tryptophan, that can help us with getting a good night's sleep. And there is some research which shows that foods that are high in tryptophan do indeed help a little bit. But a lot of times people say, well, that's high in turkey and poultry. So should I eat chicken or turkey at night? And I said, no, that's not necessary because there's also tryptophan in whole grains. And really the tryptophan that's available in whole grains 
is actually better able to cross the uh, blood-brain barrier. I won't get into all the details, but the amount of tryptophan that's available from whole grain bread is going to be more than the tryptophan available from chicken. And we also want to do high carb, and we mean complex carb, you know, low glycemic, like whole grain, wheat, or whole grain pasta, or beans. These things are going to keep your sugar at a steady level. So if there's, you know, uh, spikes in the sugar, that can also disrupt our sleep schedule. And this is something I mentioned previously that we really don't want people to be eating the last three hours before they go to bed. We want, you know, the food to have digested. And now we want the body to focus on repair, on detoxifying. So if it's, you know, dealing with food, it's not going to have the opportunity to clean up or do it as effectively. Okay, lifestyle. And, you know, this is physical activity, as Dr. Beavis mentioning, that the higher the physical activity, the more adenosine you're generating. And this is going to kind of give you more fuel for the race, allow you to sleep longer and more restoratively. So any sort of physical activity you like doesn't matter, you know, dancing, walking, swimming, basketball, whatever you like. Any physical activity will increase the adenosine and give you a better night's sleep. Sunlight exposure has really helpful. So this is something that's been helpful for a lot of my patients. I kind of go through you know, what are the challenges with sleep? And we try to optimize all of them. Just having folks go outside during the morning just for 15, 20 minutes and they can take a walk or spend some time in the garden. In the garden, this kind of resets their internal circadian clock, gets the melatonin production to decrease at uh, daytime and increase at night, really optimizes that. And we talked about caffeine and alcohol. We wanna avoid these substances if at all possible but certainly not consume them in the last three hours before going to sleep. And lastly, I'll mention a little bit about medications. Certain medications for high blood pressure like thiazides uh, and Lasix, they are diuretic. So if you take these medications at night, you're going to be getting up every two hours to go to sleep. And another uh, medications like ADHD uh, medications, these are stimulants. And again, you don't want to take these at night. So if you have to take medications, you know, our preference is to reduce the medications as much as possible. But if that's not something, something you have to take medications, take these medications earlier in the day. And folks are always asking me about supplements. You know, what can I do to improve my sleep? So whether it's vitamin D, magnesium, zinc, and iron, all these substances, all of these supplements, I should say, or all these hormones and minerals, we want them at the optimal level. So if there's a, if we have lower levels of these, certainly replacement as a supplement will help. But if they're already normal, it's not gonna do much more good. And people are always asking that, you know, a lot of my friends are taking melatonin, it's really helping them. And I remind them melatonin is a hormone and it has many other, uh, functions than just getting us to sleep. It interacts with the immune system. And in general, we want our body to produce the melatonin. But if you take it on occasion, it's not a big deal. If you're traveling and suffering jet lag, it can be very helpful for that. But this is not something you want to do on a chronic basis, because once you are taking melatonin, uh, doing it regularly, it's disrupting the internal feedback mechanisms. And we really want the body to produce as much melatonin, melatonin as is needed. There are other sort of uh, compounds like valerian, lavender, hops, chamomile, and I'm sure there are others that have been reported to help with sleep. And there's variable amount of research on how much these help, but there is some research that you know, these can be helpful. And I talked about prescription sleep aids earlier, earlier that this is really, I just want to emphasize here, really to be done on a very sparing basis. You know, really, you haven't gotten to sleep in five, six nights, and you really, you know, just need some sleep. You can take it on very occasional basis. Really, these things are addicting, and they're not producing naturalistic sleep. Even though you may be asleep for seven hours, you're not getting the full benefits of naturalistic sleep with these sleep aids. Okay, another thing that can help is mindfulness. So as part of their nighttime routine, I encourage my patient 
to maybe do some mindfulness meditation. There are so many apps available these days, Calm, Headspace, 10% happier, happier, doing some gentle stretching, even some yoga, yoga nidra. All of these things are going to be able to allow us to kind of shut off our brain, kind of ease into the night and really kind of set, set us up in a good place so we can relax and then be able to go to sleep. And some of these things like, you know, uh, breathing exercises or mindfulness, you can even do in the middle of the night if you get woken up. So they're effective then also. But all of these things that I mentioned, you know, as strategies and different things we can do to improve our sleep. For some patients, if they have insomnia, you know, at that point, none of these things work well enough to get them adequate sleep. And really the, uh, what is recommended is that they seek out a psychologist who is certified in cognitive behavioral therapy specified to sleep. They have extra training on sleep and cognitive behavioral therapy. And I've referred some of my patients to that. And this is actually has a pretty good uh, effective rate. So if all the techniques and all the different tools that I mentioned, you're doing them, you're being good about, you know, turning off the TV, not doing caffeine, have a regular night schedule, you're exercising, kind of all the things I talked about, and you still can't get good night's sleep and it's on a chronic basis, then we'll refer them to a psychologist who's trained in sleep uh, and cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's the end of the didactic part of her presentation. And let me uh, get Dr. B back so we can answer any questions that you all may have. Oh, great. Thank you so much. I'm going to take you off screen share so you can be nice and large <laughs> or larger. Well, yeah. I mean, I, there was a question that was submitted in advance first. So let's see if that's on the topic of sleep. Uh, but I'm bummed. actually it's not. So let's go to the chat first and see if anybody has any questions on sleep. You know, it's funny. I heard something once said by a dog trainer that a tired dog is a happy dog. And yeah. I'm thinking that in, you know, everybody's different, of course, but I'm thinking with a lot of people, so many people just don't do any exercise at all. It's certainly not vigorous exercise. And I think that if people would do that, I think a lot less people might have some sleep problems. We agree completely, and the research supports, you know, what you're saying, that we need enough sort of adenosine to help us get to sleep and stay asleep. Yeah. So one of the questions from the live viewers is really interesting. Can you get too much sleep? That's a very good question. So this is something we didn't cover, but I'm glad this question was asked. So, you know, we kind of say as doctors that people should get seven to eight hours, and that's mostly true. But there are individuals that can do with a little bit less, maybe six and a half, seven hours. All the research that we've come across that if you're sleeping less than six hours, that it's really detrimental. Six to seven is a little bit of a gray area and seven and longer seems to be sort of the sweet spot for most people. But there are some patients that sleep nine hours and they said, unless I sleep nine hours, I'm cranky the next day or I'm just not able to function. So just like anything else, it's sort of like in a bell curve distribution. Some people may need six and a half, seven hours. Other people may need eight and a half and nine hours. So I don't know if you've kind of- Yeah, really no, actually the ACLM book says seven to nine hours is, is ideal. So I think over nine, uh, I would worry about if there's any depression or something else causing them to sleep more. Um, but up to nine hours for a lot of people is, is normal. Yeah, but if you're sleeping 10, 11 hours, yeah. I would get, get it checked out. That's not mm -hmm. what we would cons consider that not normal. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so there's a question from Elena. Can you talk about ashwagandha? <laughs> <laughs> so there are so many supplements and so many different things that uh, folks use and ashwagandha being a popular one. So I... And I kind of remind my patients that I'm a lifestyle medicine physician, and I want you to minimize the use of prescription medications and the use of uh, even uh, supplements, because our body really has all the, you know, equipment to produce the right amount of hormones, the right amount of different compounds. So I really encourage them to do that. But I know there are certain people, and I have many of them, that swear by ashwagandha. Mm -hmm. 
They say when they take ashwagandha, they get a good night's sleep. So in these sort of circumstances, I kind of say, okay, what is the harm? What is the benefit? If the harm from what, you know, maybe Dr. V can tell more, she's maybe done more research on this, doesn't seem to be very much as fairly safe, but, you know, nothing is going to be absolutely safe. But if this is allowing them to get a good night's sleep and all the naturalistic sleep that we want them to do, then, then maybe it's okay. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I do have a lot of patients who take that um, and they feel like it helps calm them down and it helps them. Um, and I noticed even Costco has it now. <laughs> so it's definitely getting um, some buzz out there. Are there consequences for people that can't go to sleep without nightly things like Ambien or Tramadol that have been on it for a very long time? Yes, there's definite consequences because when you're taking these, especially prescription sleep medications, they are more akin to sedatives. So even though, let's say you sleep eight hours, you're not getting the naturalistic sleep. That's why we wanted to cover the sleep architecture. The sleep is very regimented. You know, first you're in light sleep or stage one, then you go to stage two, then you go to stage three. Then you go to stage four and all these are non-REM parts of the sleep. And then you go to REM sleep. So there's a very predictable and orderly fashion that sleep happens. And this cycle that I just mentioned is repeated four to five times. So when you're taking these sleep aids like Ambien, Tramadol, Lunesta, all of these things, they are interfering with the sleep architecture. And every part of sleep is important. You know, I kind of made the point that this thing happens in deep sleep. Well, there's different things happening in different stages of sleep that I didn't have the time to kind of cover that, you know, stage two is also important for emotional detox and stage three is important for other reasons. So nature is very clever. It put together our sleep. I mean, it's evolving over millions of years. If something was not needed, you know, it would have been gone. And these medications cannot duplicate the naturalistic sleep that we naturally get. I mean, I don't want to be sort of kind of hard line about this because if you're not able to sleep at all for like six, seven nights and you just need to get some sleep, you know, it's okay to take it under those extreme circumstances. But we want to figure out why are you not getting to sleep on a regular basis? Really, they need a workup. We need to figure out, is it a glucose issue? Is it diabetes? Is it something else going on? Is it a vitamin or mineral deficiency? Is there some, you know, mood disorder that we need to work on? So, you know, taking these things on a regular basis is not as detrimental for a variety of reasons. But if you've been on them for years, I wouldn't recommend just stopping. Uh, definitely get some help from a cognitive behavior therapist or your doctor in terms of weaning things off and um, getting off with help. Yeah, very good. Safety first. So if you've been on these for a while, don't just cold turkey stop and say, okay, this guy on Chef AJ said <laughs> these things are bad. So everything, you know, you want to do it methodically with, you know, expert clinical advice. But are people able to get off of them? I, I think about Michael Jackson and, you know, it seems like once people start taking these prescription sleep aids, I don't, I know very few people that ever stop. You know, it's very hard. You can make sort of the same analogy. Once you get addicted to processed foods, can you get off of that? You can, but it's a, it's a lot of hard work and you really have to be dedicated and you want to say, okay, I want to do this because I want to do this because it's better for me. I love myself to get off these processed foods. And it's the same analogy. You've got to work hard. It's not easy by any means. And usually you're right. It goes worse and worse. First, you take these medications and then you take IV medications, and then you take, I mean, he was an extreme stuff. Because you get tolerance. You get tolerance. You know, 10 milligrams of Ambien is not enough anymore. And now you need a, a second medication on top of that. Right. And he was on barbiturates, and he was actually getting propofol. Propofol is something we give to people going into surgery. Yeah, anesthesia. And this is like an anesthesia medicine. That's what Michael Jackson's on. That's what he overdosed on. Wow, that's something. So this is an interesting question from Gina, because when I followed a 100% raw food diet, I could not get much sleep. I, and, and I didn't like the feeling of not only sleeping about four or five hours a night. And she wants to know, is being mostly raw and having or needing less sleep detrimental to your health? 
So I'm going to uh, not answer the raw question just yet. Let me just kind of say, and we can come back to that if you like, but not getting enough sleep is definitely detrimental. Mm -hmm. There, every part of our body suffers for nearly, I would say 99% plus patients if you're sleeping less than six hours. And sleeping less than five hours, we have huge amount of data showing heart disease, strokes, Alzheimer's, you name it. It's just, it's not a good idea. I mean, there's so much research showing that. So if taking raw foods is reducing the amount of sleep that you're doing, then I would really encourage her to include some really complex carbohydrates mm -hmm. like whole grains and beans, especially at dinner time. This will really kind of help. Or sweet potato. Or sweet potatoes, the complex carbohydrates, you know, mm -hmm. whatever she chooses. This will help her get a little bit more sleep, I would suspect. So with everything, you have to also pay attention to your body. Um, for me, for instance, I know um, breathing exercises is something that people really talk about the benefits. My parents, my mother-in-law, pranayam is something, you know, that a lot of Indians do for health benefits. And I know that when I did quite a bit of that, I could not sleep uh, because it gave me too much energy. So it may be a similar thing that the raw foods are giving her too much energy and it's keeping her from sleeping. And even like for me, exercising uh, vigorously the end of the day messes with my sleep because it again energizes me. So I have to exercise more in the morning in terms of vigorously in the afternoon or evening. I could do something like after dinner walk or yoga stretches before bedtime, but not, not anything intense. So you also have to be paying attention to what, what works in terms of your body and your sleep. Yeah, great. Thank you. Here, this question from, uh, where is it? And as Kathy says, I've heard the magic hours for the body to clean house is 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. I actually heard it was earlier from Dr. Linda Carney. If you go to sleep at 2 a.m. but sleep till 10 a.m., does the body alter those magic cleaning hours? Yeah, no, this is a very good question. I'm not sure that it's really settled in the research, but definitely the earlier part, you know, just think of how we evolved on this planet. When it was dark, we went to sleep. When it was light, we were up. So our body, our nature is to sleep a little bit earlier. And really the body is going to get the most efficient things done quickly, right? It's got all this garbage build up, the cleanup. So that's going to happen maybe 10 to 1 or 11 to 2. So folks who are really sleeping later at night and really they're saying, I'm getting eight hours, mm -hmm. there is more and more evidence emerging that that's not as, you know, sleeping from 10 is better than sleeping from 1 to 9, just for that very reason. Yeah, thank you. Here's a question on kids and sleep. From MJ, what is the best amount of sleep for kids and what can I do to make my son sleep better? Yeah, so this is, you know, berries. And uh, do you remember the what for kids and adolescents? It's been a while. Our kids are in their 20s now, but they definitely need more um, when they are young. And then they again need more when they're teenagers. Um, so, yeah. I can try to remember. I think, you know, even up to 10 to 11 hours for a teenager is perfectly fine. Yeah. And this is, you know, we were really happy when the school that our kids went to, the start time from 7.30 to 8.45, it made our kids so much happier because they could sleep in. But so we did that because of the research from American Academy of Pediatrics showing that kids that age can't function as well in the morning and they need it to be later. Um, if you actually go to American Academy of Pediatrics website, you should be able to find what the recommendations are for different age groups. Oh, good. Thank you. So uh, somebody's asking, is it okay if you sleep on and off as long as you get a total of eight hours, but not continuously the whole night? And like Kathy's saying, if you fall asleep on the couch for three hours and then you go to bed and get three more, like is a combination healthier? You got to kind of go all the way through. No, this is really interesting. Actually, a lot of cultures before, let's say, last 200, 300 years, they had a bimodal sleep pattern. They would sleep two, three hours in the afternoon and maybe five, six hours at nighttime. Siesta. They would have a siesta. I mean, there's still, you know, in several cultures that's still going on. So 
our body is incredibly adaptable and it doesn't seem to make a difference if you sleep for a couple of hours you know in the afternoon and you sleep for five six hours in the at nighttime however some of my patients are watching tv at six seven o'clock and then they fall asleep and then they wake up at nine ten o'clock and then they again want to sleep well that pattern is not helpful okay because late night is really going to disrupt the sleep architecture it's really going to disrupt how much you know then your body thinks okay it's getting close to bedtime seven o'clock i really should be getting everything ready for sleep and then you wake up at nine or ten and then you again try to go back to sleep that is not a good idea so but from uh ancient cultures we know that if you're sleeping earlier in the day and you sleep you, know, you can divide it up so that is definitely but at least try to do five to six hours together right so in a row. that's what the data has that we want to do five to six hours minimum at nighttime perfect so what about when you wake up and you can't get back to sleep asks truthful okay so this is where some of the things that i covered you know near the end of the presentation one you want to kind of try to stay in your bed if at all possible you know resist the urge okay i'm not falling asleep let me go work on this project so that's something you know if you do that for a couple of nights then your body says okay it's time to work and you're going to habituate that pattern so one just stay in bed number two you can do a little bit of stretching do some breathing exercises maybe some mindfulness in bed but there's nothing that we're like doing to go to sleep. It's sort of like letting go. So all these exercises, you know, uh, doing breathing exercises, a little bit of mindfulness is just to get your mind to a calmer place. And then just kind of being with it and kind of having the attitude, it's okay if I go to sleep, it's okay if I don't go to sleep. But if you have the attitude, I've got to get sleep. I've got a meeting in the morning and you keep looking at the clock. If you stress about not being able to sleep and makes it worse. It's going to make it worse. Yeah, so that, that, that just, makes sense. Stephanie says, is there another way to, to better a sleep problem other than using a CPAP machine and our CPAP machines safe? So many people have a hard time getting used to them, I'm told. Yeah, so Dr. Beagle. Yeah, so they are safe. Um, it is kind of a hard thing to get used to. Sometimes it may require trying different masks. Um, you can get a full face mask, you can get just a nasal mask. Um, you know, it's it's hard when you're traveling, but there's also a traveling CPAP machine that you can get. Um, it is still, it is safe. Um, it is effective in the sense that it does take away sleep apnea symptoms and the consequences of sleep apnea. It decreases your risk for heart disease, for hypertension, really, you know, all the metabolic abnormalities you mentioned, sleep apnea definitely helps with that. Uh, the other part of the question, there are appliances that mm -hmm. people can wear. There's even jaw surgery that'll open up your airway that you can do. Mm -hmm. So definitely there are other options besides CPAP, but CPAP being the most commonly prescribed option, and it really does seem to work. Thank you. And Aditi said, I recently had a stroke in spite of a healthy lifestyle, and yesterday I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. Could that be the cause of my stroke? You know, it's uh, anything that's going to depress the ventilation drive could potentially affect sleep. So we would really have to, you know, this is a question for the neurologist. So I would say it's possible. Yeah. And also, we don't know if she also had high blood pressure that Let that also leads to stroke and high blood pressure definitely is caused by sleep apnea as well. So it could be related. Uh, we just don't know enough information. Right. But you know, it's worth for her to, you know, to have this conversation with her neurologist. Right. Thank you. I have one more question. This one was sent in by Victoria. Uh, they're saying at the end of your December show, um, you answered questions about how eating a whole food diet can help ocular migraines. And she was inspired by your answer. And she says, I've not gone completely free of sugar, oil, or salt and wonder if that would be a significant addition. My family does not think what, I, what I'm eating or not eating has anything to do with having migraines or not having migraines. Uh, to my surprise, not eating dairy has been the most difficult obstacle for me. 
and she has disapproval of loved ones and she can't figure out how to handle the rejection of her dietary choices. That would be a good question for Dr. Lyle. But I think Mm -hmm. the main thing is, is if she follows a more strict version, could it help her migraines, specifically ocular migraines? It's worth a try. Um, I would say do an experiment, um, see for maybe three weeks um, that you do a strict whole food plant-based SOS free diet um, and see what it does for you. Um, I'm curious to know if uh, going more towards whole food plant-based has, even though it hasn't been completely, uh, strictly 100%, if she's noticed any improvement and decrease in her ocular migraine so far. If she has, then definitely it's worth trying to go all the way and see what that does. Great. Well, thank you. This was great. What pillar are we going to discuss next month? Uh, Next month is going to be community, right? Community, healthy community, healthy healthy relationships. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I love your presentations. Thank Thank you you for having us. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. And don't forget, tell them again about the free meditation because that's in every show you've done with me so they can get the link there. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. If anyone's curious about, you know, trying mindfulness meditation, we do it on the first Saturday and third Saturday on 9 a.m. on Central Time. The Zoom link to join from, you know, anywhere in the world, really, is on our website, uh, lifestyledocs.com. Perfect. Thanks. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 2 p.m. today. My guests are Dr. Dr. Campbell was yesterday, Nelson Campbell and Kim Campbell. Take care, everybody.